Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The decision by Twitter and other social media platforms to suspend President Trump's accounts in the wake of the storming of Capitol Hill last Wednesday has led to a fierce debate over the meaning of freedom of speech. In his new book, Saving Free Speech from Itself, Toro College Law Professor Thane Rosenbaum argues that certain limits on free speech are not only constitutional and in line with previous case law, but are essential for the maintenance of civil society and personal dignity. <clears throat> Excuse me. His book is published by Fig Tree Books, and I'm very pleased that it has brought Thane Ros- Rosenbaum back to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much, Leonard. Always enjoy talking to you. You couldn't have known when you were writing this book just how germane it would uh, be in this current debate. But isn't the First Amendment clear on this? It states that Congress shall make no law abridging the the freedom of speech. Congress, not Google. That's correct. Uh, The Google issue represents a whole different set of problems, Uh, but it's not necessarily in any way a First Amendment issue. You're quite right. the First Amendment's intent, by the way, it's so true of all the Bill of Rights. As a nation, as early colonialists, we were traumatized by King George III. So every one of our Bill of Rights are set up with the government can't do this to us. So they're not really affirmative rights, they're negative. This is what the government can't do to us. So it even starts off in the First Amendment, just like that, Congress shall not. So the idea is that Congress cannot uh, uh, pass legislation or ordinances that restrict your speech uh, especially if you're engaging in issues of public concern, um, because that's the whole point of representative democracy, that, that citizens have the right to criticize, criticize their government without going to jail. And by raising the, eleva- uh, the uh, levels of debate in the public uh, marketplace of ideas uh, and to you know, help a government make better decisions. That's the First Amendment. That's what it's for. Well, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., called Google's decision, quote, a full frontal assault on freedom of speech. And then he said, free speech is dead and controlled by leftist overlords. So how, I mean, beyond what he was saying, how would you define freedom of speech? Well, here's the thing about the Google, Apple, you know, uh, various platforming, deplatforming of the president. Uh, That has to do really with to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, in which it granted these Internet platforms immunity from lawsuits so that they can essentially operate without any sense of, you know, impunity, with a sense of impunity. Uh, They were given that because of the principle that they are not content producers. They're merely platforms. But the truth is that when when they eliminate accounts, when they censor different point of views, they're functioning just like a publishing arm, and in some ways, the same idea. The, the point of the First Amendment is that the government doesn't have the right to pick favorites, right? That's called viewpoint discrimination. And that's why we're concerned that the government not restrict speech, because otherwise it will favor one speech over the other. But it's clear that what we're seeing just, you know, as of late, that, that uh, you know, when it comes to uh, social media platforms and Internet platforms, they, they make decisions. Stories about Ukraine are okay. These are about China are okay. They make these decisions. They, you know, the Ayatollahs of Iran have uh, tweeted, they tweet out that Israel should be wiped off from the face of the earth, right? They made a decision that that is something that's appropriate to be on Twitter. So I think it is confusing for most people. 
Um, but I don't think that the issue here uh, about uh, the president's treatment, whether it is even with respect to the, the golf courses, right? The, mm. the, these, these examples are really examples of moral censure, right? Where the community or businesses say, we ostracize you, we censure you morally, not legally. We just simply say, we want you off our platform. We don't want you tweeting. We don't want you. That is very different than a First Amendment restriction. Uh, again, these are, this is all in the private sphere, and people have a, a, a choice to make that decision. A good example, by the way, Leonard, is the Ka Colin Kaepernick, right? Because initially, right, uh, it was clear that the league, the NFL, and the San Francisco 49ers were being told by fans, we don't want players kneeling during the national anthem. So the team said, well, we're not going to let our players do that. Most people thought, well, doesn't Colin Kaepernick have a First Amendment right to kneel and protest the national anthem because of police brutality? And the answer is no, he doesn't. Why? Because he, he works for the San Francisco 49ers, and it's like they're under contract, and they can decide how the players should be presented on the field at the time of the singing the national anthem. If the state of California, however, Leonard, passed a law that said at all sporting events throughout the state, everyone must, including fans and players, stand at attention, that would violate the First Amendment. So I think that sort of helped crystallize the difference between private restrictions on speech and governmental restrictions on speech. So is this similar to when a shop decides to carry one brand and not another? Yes. I mean, you know, it is often the case that private businesses make discriminatory decisions, right? They decide we won't, you know. By the way, this happened interestingly within this report with the master cake case, right? This was out of Colorado. You have a, a master cake maker who said, I, I have a, I, the same-sex marriage violates my uh, religious beliefs, and you can't make me make a cake for a same-sex couple. Uh, so now there you have a clash of principles, right? He has a a First Amendment right of religion. He also has a First Amendment right, as he said, I'm a really good cake maker. I'm an artist. So you can't force me to actually speak to something I don't want to speak to. Um, the Supreme Court sort of ducked that case, but it goes to the idea that it's very often the case that private businesses make a decision on who they want to cater to, provided that they're not violating certain kinds of civil rights statutes. They can make those decisions who to do business with. How much is it a matter of interpretation? The president didn't explicitly tell his followers to commit criminal acts last Wednesday. That's true. So there is a seminal Supreme Court case, Leonard, Brandenburg versus Ohio. I'm sure in the last few days people are hearing it. So now they're hearing it on Leonard Lopez show. Brandenburg versus Ohio. Want to sound really smart? Invoke those, those, that, that case. Uh, and it's a case that essentially says that, of course, you know, this is part of the restrictions, the various categories of when speech is permissibly restricted, even by the government, right? Because we know free speech is not limitless. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. So we all know there are certain kinds of restrictions, certain kinds of prescribed categories of speech that we, the government can stop. For instance, libel and slander, defamation. Uh, obscenity, fighting words. And another one is called the, the, the incitement of imminent lawlessness. And that comes from this case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. Mm -hmm. A person cannot rally a group of people to go attack 
someone else or other group or commit a crime, and the person who was the speaker doesn't participate in that. He or she goes home and orders a pizza and watches it on television. He then can't say, well, I wasn't even there. I had nothing to do with that crime. The answer is you are going to be held responsible because you were the one that set it in motion as long as the lawlessness is imminent. So, for instance, if the the people show up the next day, then it's not imminent lawlessness, right? It has to be imminent lawlessness and that it, in fact, ultimately results in violence. Now the question is, is that what the president did? Um, He doesn't say that. He didn't say, let's all go to the uh, Capitol building, smash some windows, occupy some offices of congresspersons, and intimidate the hell out of every legislator so that they overturn the results. And also it's problematic because this is the way the president has been speaking to his people from day one. (laughs) This is what he says. He says ridiculous, outrageous, false things all the time. The president has the ability to engage, he has the right to engage in political advocacy, right? Is this political advocacy or was this the incitement of lawlessness, even though he doesn't actually direct them to do this? Now, look, the people who believe- Well, they interpret it as such. I mean, they were saying hang Pence, hang Mike Pence because of things that he said. Yes. Yeah, well, that, no, I, look, I think that the What's problematic here is that the president has been saying this all along. So the imminence is tricky, right? He's, his, his lawyers would say, my client, the president, has been speaking to rallies forever, for the last five years since he decided to run for president. Every one of them has at least 10,000 people. None of There's never been violence at the end of that, right? He just did what he always does. He says these things. Look, Leonard, he shouldn't have been there. His speech was incredibly reckless horribly irresponsible. Um, But I think that, you know, First Amendment lawyers, First Amendment scholars might have a difficult time on the basis of a Brandenburg standard to say that he actually, in this instance, committed, you know, essentially is stripped of his First Amendment protections because what he did was actually incite an entire crowd to violence. I think it's on the line I'm sure I'm reading people saying that's not even close. I heard a D.C. prosecutor on one of the, um, and he's a Republican, by the way, on one of the news shows last night who said, I don't see it. Uh, it was my job to see these things, and I, you know, I, I don't see what the president did in this instance is crossing the Brandenburg line. Well, the, you mentioned the classic exemption, falsely shouting fire in a theater. Uh, in that case, uh, because it might cause a panic. Well, right, exactly. The, in this case, it did seem to inspire a lot of people to go, and uh, and he said, "I'm going with you," even though he didn't, uh, to to go to the Capitol building and uh, and break in. Uh, yeah, but okay. I, look, look, he, he, that's why I said I don't, I can't speak to this. It's hard to know. I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting legal question. Fascinating, I'm sure, for law students to see it. Um, but again, what that you normally see, uh, Leonard, in that situation is much more explicit talk of here's what we're going to go do. And since he used the word peaceful, yes, he used the word fight repeatedly, right? He said, and Rudy Giuliani used the word combat. Yeah, that's, yeah, by the way, <laughs> off on another subject, I actually think that the, the case against Giuliani of being stripped of his First Amendment protections is much closer to Brandenburg. He used the word combat. 
um, you know, referendum on Kaivag or something uses. Again, it's used normally with the let's go out and do the following event. And so that's what you're hearing today is, you know, and I'm sure you're hearing debates. Most of the voices are in favor of impeachment. So here's an example of a president who incited violence, insurrection. Um, But I'm just, you know, I'm just saying that if you look at it from a purely constitutional perspective, it's not exactly uh, what Brandenburg versus Ohio means, but I can see how one would extrapolate. There is another argument here, Leonard, which is to say the president is held to a higher standard than a private citizen. I mean, I, I like that argument, right? It may be that a private citizen who got up on stage and said what the president said would not have been enough to invoke, to, to lose the First Amendment protections under Brandenburg. But the president, knowing how volatile you know, this campaign has been and the, the post-election lawsuits and, and uh, ongoing claims of fraud and stolen election, for him to have done that, it, it was inevitable that something like this would happen. Again, holding him to a higher standard. And by the way, in impeachment, that's what crime, high crimes and misdemeanors mean. It's not a crime that's easily defined, as we saw the last impeachment. Um, and it might really fit into this category, meaning that, yeah, it, it may be a private citizen would have been helped, but you're the president and we're seeing your conduct as that on that day as violating the principle of high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, last week, Cumulus Media sent a memo telling its talk show host to stop claiming the election was stolen or they would have to face termination. Is that censorship or is that simply saying, uh, you can do it elsewhere, but you don't do it in my store. So wait, who was that that in, in, in that provided C- that order? Cumulus Media. They uh, carry in a lot oh. of talk show hosts, no, a lot I of talk see. shows. Well, again, you know, they're a private business. Uh, you know, the radio stations and the producers who produce these shows are in private business. Uh, it's not the government uh, making a restriction on speech. It really speaks to something else, Leonard, which is in your field also, you know, the role of media and the restrictions mm-hmm. on speech. You know, what happened with the New York Times and uh, James Bennett, who was the op editor, op editor, who was forced to resign because of the Tom Cotton uh, mm-hmm. op-ed, which, you know, argued for, you know, uh, invoking the Insurrection Act to quell some of the violence that spilled over from Black Lives Matter, 63% of the American public agreed with that. The Insurrection Act was used in the 1960s to help integrate Southern schools. So the act can, has been used, and in fact, it's normally had been used to help African-Americans. In this case, it would be used to stop the violence. The New York Times apologized for the op-ed. Uh, eventually, the entire op-ed team that was involved in that uh, publication of that essay was reassigned or fired or left. Um, For me, Leonard, that was a dark day for journalism. Um, And for the same reason, I think that if any uh, media outlet is calling its affiliates and saying, you can no longer say that the election, again, there's a difference between stolen widespread fraud and having questions about the election. I do think the election presented questions at least two constitutional questions that I thought the Supreme Court would hear. I, I got to tell you, I was surprised that they didn't. 
um, and other questions about how the mail-in balloting processing of, of tabulations was done in the various battleground states. There are questions. I don't think it would have made a difference. I think that the votes clearly showed that Biden had received more of them. But I do think there were discrepancies, there were irregularities. And to say that anything that is this, any question of the election is sedition, to me, violates the principle of free speech. My guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large is Thane Rosenbaum, Distinguished University Professor of Law at Toro College. And we're discussing his book, Saving Free Speech from Itself. Fig Tree Books is the publisher. This is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Ken Sidney Powell, one of President Trump's former lawyers and, and many members of the right-wing media, claim that free speech protects them against the defamation lawsuit being brought by Dominion Voting Systems? No. I mean, I they, they well, you know, again, uh, libel and defamation in the United States, again, is a category of speech that is, does it, that is restricted. Um, they don't receive protections as they're not government employees in the act of doing their job. For instance, that it's interesting that you raise that point because, you know, well, but part, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. One of the reasons I'm curious about it is because on a personal level, because uh, the New York Times has published false information about me and I have wondered whether I should sue for libel. Yeah, well, so... So the, the, one of the things that's true about the United States uh, is that it's really hard to win a libel case. Mm. Um, and it's particularly hard to win a libel case if you're a public figure. And, you know, I bet you the New York Times would say that you are a public figure. That may be true. Case. But when they when they recently published that I've been fired for sexual harassment, when that never was an issue uh, and it never was claimed by uh, my former employer, uh, then that was just inventing, uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, a, a smear against me. It is a smear. It is. It is. There isn't. A, there is no question. That's a smear. It's damage to your reputation and to your career. There's no question about it. And I, I do think. Look, I don't. I am someone who's been out here as a liberal Democrat <laughs> for years, looking at things that I'm seeing and thinking, well. Maybe not fake news, but there's stuff that looks like fake news. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm a liberal Democrat. I write for so many different outlets, but I see it time and time again where the, what the information that's being conveyed is just false or slanted in such a way that is clearly to tell a story that is not objective in any way. But yes, the libel and defamation laws are there technically to, uh, to protect you. I don't think that the president's lawyers are protected um, because of whatever claims that they sought to uh, issue against Dominion. Um, I don't know if whether Dominion will win. Again, you know, unlike the UK, where it's much much easier to win a libel and defamation case, here it's it's just it's tougher um, on, on many levels. I, I always point my students to you know the Jerry Falwell case, um, you know, against Hustler magazine. Right. That was such an interesting case. Hustler magazine took out an ad in self ad parody in their own magazine saying about Jerry Falwell, who, as you remember, at the time was the head of the moral majority. And it showed him as if it was a fake ad that he said, do you remember your first time that you and it was supposed to be about liquor. And instead, it was referring to the first time he had sex with his mother. Hmm. And the Supreme Court actually said 
because he's a public figure and parody is protected, that that one-page ad in Hustler Magazine was protected under the First Amendment. He clearly has sex with his mother. It's incredibly damaging, right, to his reputation, emotional distress. I don't even know if his mother was alive. But it's really hard to win these cases in the United States, especially if you're a Leonard Lopez. Well, and you, you can't afford to uh, hire enough legal power to that's fight right. the New York Times. But that's a whole other matter. That's an inequity issue. Yes. Do you think that Dennis Prager, the founder of the right wing propaganda outlet Prager University, has a First Amendment right to lie about climate change and deny that straight people get HIV? No. Did, well, what did the courts decide? Yeah, I mean, no, I, look, I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of truth. Uh, and, and the interrogation of, for the purpose of achieving truth in every possible way. That's why what, what I've seen in journalism in the last num number of years has been very distressing. And, you know, the speed, the, you know, the rush for judgment, the cancellation culture, right, which means that the judgment is instant. There's no deliberation. I mean, I think there's an irony in the impeachment uh, talks, right, because, you know, <laughs> the Congress is a deliberative body, but here we're saying, no, 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 no deliberation. By Wednesday, this has to happen. Well, normally, yes, Congress gets, has the right to establish its own rules for each impeachment proceeding, for sure. They have the right to change them every single time. But generally, there's an impeachment inquiry. The Judiciary Committee comes back after some investigation on the facts and whether they can establish a legal foundation for it. Uh, you know, we're living in a very different time where the cancellation culture I think has become even more powerful uh, than the Constitution itself. But the cancellation culture had nothing to do with the Alex Jones case, in fact, where, where he was ordered to pay $199,000 in a Sandy Hook defamation case, and, and James Fetzer was ordered to pay $50,000 in a similar case. Uh, yeah. they, well, they were saying on the air that, yeah. uh, that, what we, that what we knew to be true was was a hoax. Yes, and that's why I think that we should vigorously prosecute those kinds of cases, whether in civil or, or in, in criminal court. Um, but there are some topics nowadays, Leonard, that are untouchable um, because of the cancellation culture. There's fear. I mean, look, it, it's not just the firing of James Bennett, um, but of course the cancellation of Woody Allen's memoir uh, was an example of that. Again, he doesn't have a First Amendment right to publish his book, um, but you know, as a nation, even though you were right at the outside when you said it's pretty clear on its face, Congress shall not pass a law. That's true, Leonard. But as a society, as a as a nation, we've always believed that free speech applies even in private transactions. That's why this even that's why what you said at the beginning might be confusing to some of your listeners who never realized that that they always assume that well. I have a free speech right to say whatever I want at the dinner table. And if my cousin doesn't want to hear it, I can say to him, hey, buddy, I have a First Amendment right. The answer is no, you don't. You don't. You don't have a First Amendment at the dinner table with your cousin. But that doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be truthful and, and civil and mutually respectful. Um, so, you know, we've always acted as if it applied more widely, even though it didn't apply legally, but it applied socially. But we're seeing many examples of cancellation, which violate the spirit of the First Amendment, even if the spirit of the First Amendment doesn't uh, apply. For instance, you know, Roseanne Barr lost her television show.
for a racist tweet. She's a raunchy comedian, right? That was a very extreme remedy. You know, she was essentially canceled. Uh, it looks like uh, Senator Josh, uh, Josh Hawley's book, mm-hmm. from Simon Schuster, is now being canceled. Is that but, right? but in both of those cases, can't we say that the people who are canceling don't want to be associated, uh, don't yes. want to be promoting something that they find offensive? Yes. Well, let me just say this. In the case of the New York Times and Hachette, the publisher of the Woody Allen, that's not what they were saying. They were talking about their own employees, um, which is different from saying what, the, what I would say happened with the NFL and Colin Kaepernick. The NFL was saying fans are turning off the game and they don't want to show up to the stadium. We have to get the players to get off their knees and take their helmets off. And if they don't want to sing, they don't have to sing, but they have to be respectful. What happened at the New York Times was very different. It was the employees that made that decision. Uh, it wasn't the outside world that couldn't right. hear cotton uh, op-ed. And the same thing with Woody Allen's memo. The, the editors of Hachette left, and they, they said, we're, we're walking out. And then they canceled it. So, again, I, I actually agree that there's probably more strength to the argument. We don't have to, we don't have to honor a contract if it's going to harm our business because the rest of the culture is so opposed to what it is we're now printing. I understand that. But I do think it's a little different when, say, the New York Times, which benefits from free speech as well through freedom of the press, ironically canceled the speech mm-hmm. of a United States senator and essentially fired everyone simply because they were willing, prepared to publish an op-ed by that senator. And then didn't publish letters that were written to it in defense of me. But enough about me. Uh, although I am prohibited prohibited from saying any of the seven dirty words that George Carlin cited in that famous comedy routine. But those same some of those words are allowed on cable TV shows and all of them are permitted on paid TV shows. So is it also a matter of where the offense is made? Or you in know, the case really- the case of the Carlin case, there was a Supreme Court decision, but it only applied to over-the-air broadcasts. But see, the reason for that, it's interesting that you pointed out, I'm glad you did, is because those dealt with broadcast licenses issued by the government, hmm. right? So you can see how that plays very differently. If the government, it's all, the First Amendment always comes up if the government is doing the stopping, the stoppage, the restriction, the curtailment, Right. So if you deny someone a broadcast license as the government entity, that is a, it raises First Amendment rights, speech rights, First Amendment press rights, which is very different. Like, for instance, that's why we have Fox News today, because the, the original law that spoke about the fairness doctrine basically said, uh, you know, you don't get to have a license for radio or television unless you provide com- competing points of view. You can't just tell one story. And it wasn't until they revoked that statute that you started to see MSNBC take a position. Everyone now is clearly affiliated, and I suspect that's true in radio as well as cable, that when you turn something out and you know you're not getting something objective. Well, that's not how it originally was. Originally was is that you were held by FCC, Federal Mm -hmm. Communications Commission, uh, licenses that were issued by the federal government, or state authorities, and therefore, if there was any restriction. Um, but again, the Supreme Court upheld the right to restrict those words, right? So again, there are occasions uh, when the Supreme Court has stepped in to remind that the 
First Amendment is not without any limitations. There are some restrictions. And in the George Carlin case, we were told that the, the free speech rights of the comedian and the radio station were superseded by a broader right that the government, uh, the Supreme Court said we had in obscenity and that we well, I, should be protected from that. Ironically, uh, I was suspended for a week because a guest who appears regularly on MSNBC used the word that he can use on MSNBC, but can't use on my show. And we didn't bleep him out. Yeah, no, I remember it was heartbreaking for me. So I, you know, I'm a big Leonard Lofe fan. Yeah, look, but see, that has a little to do with what I was saying before, which is, of course, if you're a media company, you could take the position that we are terrified of the Me Too movement or we are terrified of the Black Lives Matter movement, or we are terrified of the Trump, hate, Trump haters. Because those are three categories that are common over the last several years, right? Very, very strong public sentiment, you know, in these directions. And so therefore, we are afraid that if we show uh, that we are in any way supportive of this, we will lose our business, which gives you a reason why, you know, these companies have no fear of First Amendment you know, what they may have done, for instance, in your former employer, they could have simply breached your contract. I hope they did, right? Because the way you were treated was could have been a breach of a contract. They might have said, it's willing, we're willing to pay for the breach of contract. I mean, I suspect that's going to happen with, you know, Josh Hawley, you know, that he's going he, you know, to have a lawsuit against Simon & Schuster. I delivered the PGA going to have to pay Trump for canceling? It might be. I don't, right, exactly. I don't understand the, the contractual circumstances. But for instance, Josh Hawley could say, I wrote the book as you told me to write the book. I delivered the book as I have delivered the book. We made edits together and you accepted the book and we were ready for publication. What happened? What happened? Nothing's happened. I just functioned as a senator, but because I took a position that, on, you know, that, that, that we had this one opportunity during the day uh, that invoking the Electoral Count Act, during the day of joint session of Congress to count the votes of the Electoral College, I invoked a 19th century statute that allowed both houses of Congress to debate the individual slates that we think should be in dispute. That's why I lost, you know. Maybe it was because he, maybe because he pumped his fist at the people who were going to destroy the Capitol building. But uh, I have to tell I, everyone. I don't know, you know, look, I'm not defending any of these people. I'm just saying, I thought Hawley said, he was walking behind the building with his wife, and he didn't know what was happening yeah, in front of yeah, the building. Right. I can't believe that he was cheering on people smashing. You know, it's his house. So, you know, um, look, his position is, you know, and I don't think it's a bad position. Uh, the founding fathers would be appalled by the breaking and entering and the unlawful entry and the violence caused within the Capitol. The founding fathers would have had no problem with the freedom of assembly and association to have people who were objecting to the election meet at the National Mall. I, I, the Founding Fathers would have said that's exactly what we had in mind. And in terms of the debating inside the House uh, of, of Representatives, I assume the Founding Fathers would say the same thing, that speech and debate is an obligation of the houses, both houses of Congress. And if that's what they're doing, then they're doing their job. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
Before I get back to my conversation with Thane Rosenbaum, I would just like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of this free speech radio station. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516 516- 620-3602. The website is give to wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Saving Free Speech from Itself by my guest, Thane Rosenbaum. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step and keep this show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org online. WBAI is the only station in New York that's 100% listener-sponsored without grants or corporate sponsorship of any kind. So we don't have to worry about pressures about what we say and don't say. Uh, But don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. And uh, now we return to my conversation with Professor Thane Rosenbaum, whose latest book is called Saving Free Speech from Itself. It's from Fig Tree Books. Um, Isn't the National Socialist Party of America versus Village of Skokie case in 1977 considered a classic free speech case in constitutional law classes? Yes, although a despicable case. And in my book, you know, this is what's so interesting because, you know, I wrote the book because I think that Americans our, our legal system is far too permissive on certain elements of free speech that we grant that no other liberal democracy in the world would do. Uh, in Germany, uh, in Austria, in France, if you're a neo-Nazi and you want to march, uh, they'll march you straight to jail. You can march, but we're going to put you straight to jail. Um, well, that's not completely I true. I understand. I understand that you can't march with a Nazi flag, but nowadays they're marching with Confederate flags. In, in the United States. In Germany. Oh, in, in Germany, yes. Well, that's fine because the, the language is clear in Germany that you can't use Nazi paraphernalia, right? So you can use American Confederate Here you can. Yeah, uh, you can. But, but uh, no, in Germany, the owning, using, showcasing uh, Nazi paraphernalia, espousing the philosophy of neo-Nazism is, is, is essentially unlawful. They... They don't tolerate it, and they have free speech as well. They, have a, they come also out of the cradle of the Enlightenment. They read the same books that our founding fathers read, Locke, Hume, Rousseau, uh, Kant, uh, and they don't allow this. Uh, we are the only outlier country that thinks it's a credit to our Constitution to let uh, cross burners burn crosses on African-American lawns, uh, uh, have Nazis march, through a small town of Holocaust survivors, uh, to uh, have the Charlottesville rioters uh, with tiki torches and lights, you know, lamps, 
uh, shouting or sh- chanting, Jews will not replace us. Um, and uh, yes, that is a landmark case. Uh, many constitutional scholars, I am not clearly not among them, I am a, on the minority, uh, think that this is a credit uh, to our uh, democracy. I think it's embarrassing. I don't think that I don't think that marching Nazis contributes to the marketplace of ideas. That's what the founding fathers envisioned for us, that there would be a public square, that people would come and, and just debate and discuss the important ideas of the day in some civil environment, uh, you know, and that this, through that, government can be criticized. Government will then perhaps make better decisions. We could advance culture and science and art through this marketplace of ideas, I don't see the contribution in the marketplace of ideas of burning a cross on an African-American's lawn. What we've allowed instead, Leonard, is the weaponization of the First Amendment, which no other country would do, right? Where we allow- So was the intent- Yeah. So was the intent of the Nazis who marched in Skokie to express an idea, or was it to threaten and intimidate? Threaten and intimidate. I mean, there wasn't even a pretense, right? if given an offer to publish an op-ed in the Skokie Gazette or whatever the local paper is, they wouldn't have written an op-ed, and an op-ed's fine. But, but to actually dress up, you know, remember, Leonard, it's very important. This is 1977. So you're really 32 years away from the liberation of Auschwitz. It was like yesterday, right? Just to think about how profound, you know, an experience this was. The Holocaust survivors were re-traumatized. They were truly harmed, damaged. And as I point out in my book, you know, the old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names cannot hurt me. Well, all parents know that it's a, it's a great little nursery rhyme, mm-hmm. but it's absurd. It's nonsense uh, that, in fact, people can be scarred, damaged through the weaponizing of words, the, the you know, the, the harm-producing nature of things that are intended not to elevate, not for the purpose of human betterment, but for harm-doing to, to other groups of marginalized uh, human beings. And again, no other uh, liberal democracy uh, grants that. We are alone. We are also the only democracy that our founding fathers have not included the word human dignity. That is the reason why those other countries don't allow this, because human dignity stands out in their constitution as a right that would, that would contest the right of the Nazis to march on a community of Holocaust survivors, that we don't deprive people of the equality of their citizenship so that they should be afraid to go outside because of what is going to be said or the signage. There's a great quote in my book from Lyndon Johnson that says, a man has a right to leave his house in the morning every day with his children without fear of being humiliated. It's a good point. Hmm. They They should have that right. And if the Nazis and the Klan have something interesting to say, write a book, write an op ed, make an argument. But what you're doing instead is inciting, intimidating, Scaring, depriving people of their common basic decency rights to be left alone and to live on as citizens. No one should be obligated, like Jews or uh, Hispanics or Asians, should be obligated to justify their existence because some other group doesn't want you to exist. That's not an idea. That's not what the founding fathers had in mind. It would shock Hamilton and Madison and Washington to hear that what we've done, you know, my least favorite case is Snyder versus Phelps, where this church group in Kansas, the Westboro Baptist Church, is opposed to gays serving in the military. So they attend the funerals of dead Marines around the country, 
and they mm. protest with signs near the cemetery, near the burial ground, while the funeral is ongoing, signs that say, God hates fags, God hates you, God hates America, thank God for 9-11, right? The Supreme Court ruled eight to one in favor of the church over the father who won a civil damages, intentional infliction of, of uh, emotional distress case in his state. The Supreme Court overturned the verdict by the civil court, state court jury, and ordered the father to pay the attorney's fees of the church. The, uh, the last Skokie. opportunity he had to say goodbye to his son was ruined by these homophobes. And and that uh, that was a Supreme Court that was pretty much split liberal and, and conservative. Yeah, eight to one. Only Alito, who essentially was the only sensible person who didn't say these words, but it was essentially said, are you bananas? <laughs> if you read behind the lines, he was literally saying, are you out of your mind? You think this? You know, I would now, say this other thing, like, yeah, go ahead, Leonard, sorry. No, I was just going to say the Skokie case caused a major schism within the ACLU. Yeah. Are right-wing groups weaponizing free speech, forcing organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, who champion the rights of the oppressed, into defending groups determined to oppress further? Yeah, it's such a great point, Leonard. You know, in 1977, not only did the ACLU represent the Nazis in the Skokie case, but they were all Jewish lawyers. <laughs> so it was, I was like, what? Now, you know, you can imagine 32 years after Auschwitz, it's like, wait a minute, you're talking about top-notch legal representation by Jews defending the Nazis. Again, this is considered a landmark, wonderful decision. I find, I find it embarrassing. Like, I don't think it makes America look great. I think it makes us look ridiculous. Again, countries that know from Nazis, France, Germany, Austria, they don't do this because they know from Nazis. Um, uh, but you know what's interesting, Leonard, is that in 2017, when we had the Charlottesville uh, uh, riot outside the statue of Robert E. Lee, the Jews will not repl uh, replace us. Mm -hmm. Again, the ACLU represented the alt-right for the, I think it was called Unite the Right rally. So mm -hmm. just like the Nazis, the ACLU stepped in. The town of Charlottesville tried to uh, use an ordinance to prevent them from receiving a, a, a permit for the march. They wanted to move the march to a different location. The, they, there was an emergency injunction. The ACLU stepped in representing the alt-right and won, and that's why that happened. Um, but what, what's really uh, interesting about that is um, after this happened, 200 lawyers for the ACLU uh, wrote a letter to the executive director for the very first time, and basically said, why are we doing stuff like this? You know, it's never happened before. All of a sudden, we're saying, why are we representing thugs? Why, does, why aren't we in the business of trying to service the concept of, of American equality, not giving top-notch legal representation to a, 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 a group that's only purpose is to frighten, scare, intimidate, and harm other human beings? You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Thane Rosenbaum. We're talking about his latest book. It's published by Fig Tree Books, and it's called Saving Free Speech from Itself. Well, uh, is the ACLU just being uh, purist? For example, they also, uh, nine years before Charlottesville, uh, defended four students at North Carolina State University who spray painted 
hang Obama by a noose. Yeah. Is that yeah. is that would you consider that speech protected under the First Amendment? It shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's you know, again, it's 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 madness. For again, the principles, free speech. First of all, people don't know this. Uh, when the founding fathers uh, drafted the Bill of Rights, free speech wasn't even in the first draft. They were mostly interested in religion and the press. Uh, they ended up adding it, but it, it, they but they understood what it meant, which is that. It's there for the purpose of, again, allowing people, the general public, to criticize their government, to have open debate about the public issues of the day, right, and to advance knowledge, right? Um, so I think that that standard of what we've allowed to be passes for, well, any, any burp, any hiccup out of the mouth of an insane person qualifies for the marketplace of ideas. I think that's absurd. We shouldn't be afraid to make distinctions. This is sincerely offered for the purposes of advancing human betterment. And this, what you're about to do or what you're planning to do, is only there to harm someone else. In that case, you're allowed someone who doesn't believe in President Obama's policies to create a signage, image, that is violent. It is not there to just protest. It's there to, to uh, send a message that violence is appropriate in the name of politics. And that is not what the Founding Fathers thought, that the, you would excuse violence because there's a free speech right to, to do so. And that, again, is the difference between what we saw last week. The people protesting at the mall, of course, are very, very different from the people who broke the perimeter of the Capitol building. It, there's just a difference. The First Amendment never contemplated that your speech can be expressed violently. On the other hand, didn't UC Berkeley, the birthplace of the free speech movement, cancel speeches by Milo Yiannopoulos and, and Ann Coulter? Um, yeah, tragic. Yeah. What well, role should what, colleges and universities play in advancing free speech? You, you, you teach at a, at a university. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, look, what I've seen, and it's tragic to watch, is, again, the cancellation culture, the intersectional protocols of university life have led to a, a massive restrictions on free speech. Uh, speakers are being shouted down. Speakers are being disinvited, as you've described. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the concept of it, a liberal arts university, that liberalism, which is the capacity to hold conflicting ideas in separate hands and taking a moment to deliberate and making distinctions and judgments about them, is gone. Now we simply shout you down if we don't want to hear you. We don't invite you. We don't disinvite you. We don't let you read about it. We don't want you to hear about it. And yes, Leonard, a public university is a government, right, paid for by, um, by taxpayers. So technically, every time a public university does what you're describing, they're violating the First Amendment. But that was what I said before, that in an odd way, certainly on universities, the cancellation culture has overridden the Constitution because so clearly – Clearly, in state universities, for sure, and Berkeley is a state university, right? And as you know, ironically, it is the birthplace of the free speech movement. So uh, how ironic that it went from, you know, the, the, um, the essence of liberal uh, uh, debate to one in which it's simply a progressive shouting down of, of opinions we don't want to hear. So what's your opinion about those people who refuse to wear masks uh, because they claim that uh, it's an infringement on their rights and, and insist on uh, having large gatherings, uh, despite the fact that 
uh, government is telling them that they can't. Well, see, that's interesting. That goes to the point we said before about when the government actually is allowed to restrict speech. It can't amount to shouting fire in a crowded theater, right? I mm-hmm. would say the people that refuse to wear masks are shouting fire in a crowded theater and that their claim that they have a liberty right to act this way needs to be offset against a general welfare right that the government has an obligation to protect people, right? And so that's really where I would see this. It's not a liberty argument. If your decision, right, your unilateral decision to ignore a rule that's here for all our public safety, uh, that you're choosing to ignore the rule and by therefore endangering the rest of us, that liberty of yours, that interest that you believe is canceled out by the need that we need to protect ourselves, which is why, again, the imminent lawlessness test, right? It's like, yeah, you have a right to speak, but not if you're going to incite a riot. At that point, we recognize you had a right to speech, speech, but you stepped over a line that put you in a category where your speech is going to be prescribed because as a society, we can't tolerate your speech right that leads to violence and harm. Uh, we don't have much time left, but you, you mentioned uh, laws in Germany. What about France? Does it have any laws similar to our First Amendment? Didn't Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical newspaper, have a long tradition of printing cartoons that made fun of Catholics and Jews? But then when it published uh, cartoons in 2015 that made fun of Muhammad, 12 staff members of the newspaper were killed. Was the, the public right. reaction purely one of horror? Or did some that feel that Charlie Hebdo had gone too far? You know, this is such a tricky one. Yes, uh, France has free speech rights, but they also have, as I said, human dignity rights, which speak to the idea they have hate speech laws. We do not have hate speech laws. They do. Um, but again, the cartoons, if the cartoons are offered for the purposes of presenting ideas, they fall within the legitimate expression of free speech and artistic liberty to express those ideas. The problem is, is that you know there is a large number of, of uh, Sharia uh, law-abiding Muslims who live, you know, in France and throughout Europe, and under you know Sharia law, this is apostasy, and there can be only one solution for someone who draws a photo, a picture of Muhammad. They must have their head cut off. They must be killed. Um, and so there, that France was stuck with this, well, on the one hand, we believe in free speech, uh, but here we're being forced into restricting free speech uh, because uh, one community is saying we simply are intolerant. We will not allow this to exist at all. It's my example of, you know, the Book of Mormon, right? <clears throat> the Book of Mormon on opening night, I mean, you know, you know, the musical skewers Mormonism, but um, in the playbill on opening night, you opened it up, it, there was a full page ad. From the book uh, from the uh, the Church of Latter Day Saints that said, now that you've seen the musical, step into one of our churches and steal the real thing, right? There was no thought of killing the actors or the playwrights or the directors or blowing up the theater. This is what I'm saying about the cancellation mm-hmm. culture: that there is these renewed sensitivities that are being imposed, certainly on university campuses, but in other examples, we're seeing it in publishing, uh, we're seeing it in broadcasting, Leonard. We're seeing it in museums, which is a whole new set of rules that are they're, they're restrictions on free speech. They have nothing to do with government, so therefore there's no First Amendment problem. But the, the larger principle that Americans are supposed to believe in free speech, 
whether it's the government that should back away from us and let us speak or, the, or, or our neighbors should let us have an opportunity to speak to issues of public concern that of importance. And um, I would argue that the Muhammad cartoons were in the spirit of ideas and not in the spirit of harm. And we have to leave it there. My great thanks to Thane Rosenbaum, whose latest book is Saving Free Speech from Itself, published by Fig Tree Books. Been a pleasure talking with you again. Anytime, Leonard. Always enjoy hearing your voice. And that brings us to the end of today's show. And by the way, thank you, Thane. Uh, special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who produced today's interview. Uh, if you're just discovering this pro- program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Uh, we are also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you will find links to all of our past shows on our website, LendedLocatedLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment about a program or just want to say hello, my email address is LendedLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI has been put in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative deep dives on one subject for a full hour that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., we hope that you'll go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep free speech community radio alive on the New York radio dial. And one great way to support WBAI without uh, having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Saving Free Speech from Itself by my guest, Thane Rosenbaum. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support and keep this experiment in 100% listener-sponsored radio going. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Big thanks to all of you who've already stepped up to support the station. Uh, We hope that you'll tune in again tomorrow when Tom Bowman will discuss his latest book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? We'll see you then.